to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Now we've several times mentioned in the course of our study of Isaiah that the whole book of 66 chapters divides naturally into two parts. Chapters 1 to 39 form the first great part of Isaiah, and chapters 40 to 66, the second main part. The great difference between the two sections of Isaiah is that chapters 1 to 39 are really God's pronouncing of warning to the nation of Judah that nothing will come to them but trouble and ultimately judgment if they persist in what they have been doing, which is to rebel against the Lord and turn from Him to put their confidence in human resources, in human wisdom, in human friendships and allies that they are making, for example, with the Egyptians, and if they refuse, as they have been refusing, to turn and put their confidence and trust in the Lord. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of our study in Isaiah, you'll find that this is the dominant note right the way through, that the folly of Judah has been that they have refused to trust in the Lord and they have trusted either in their own resources or in alliances they've been able to make with Egypt, with Assyria, and so on. And God has warned them. You can almost pick a chapter at random. Here is chapter 31 of uh, Isaiah. And at verse 1, at the beginning of the chapter, you get this keynote where God is pronouncing a number of woes upon various uh, peoples. And he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Now here is the great folly of God's people this whole period in their history that they have by their actions, by the way they have lived, by the priorities that they have had, they have revealed that their real confidence was not in the Lord but in merely human resources. Now, through these 39 chapters that we have already studied, there are so many indications that God is a God who is going to bring his displeasure upon his people if they persist in this way. You will remember that over a prolonged period of time, God has pled with them and warned them and sought to draw them back from this kind of folly. He has used almost every possible tone of speech to persuade them. And yet they persist in 
turning away from him. But throughout these 39 chapters too, we have found that if God is a God of judgment, he is also and even more a God of salvation. And his real purpose and his real work is to save and restore his people. Judgment is his strange work, as it has been said. It is what God takes no pleasure in. He takes pleasure in salvation. He rejoices to restore his people. But if they will ultimately not be restored, then his word is a word of judgment. But you will notice it has sometimes been said the whole of chapters 1 to 39 are a solemn note of judgment. And then you come into the fresh air of chapter 40 and find here is God speaking as the God of salvation. But you just need to look through a few parts of these first 39 chapters to see that that's not true. Throughout the whole of this first section, God is seeking to bring salvation to his people. Just look back with me, for instance, at chapter 12, where there is a song that Isaiah prophesies his people will sing one day. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. The very words with which chapter 40 begins, you will notice. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. You get the same note in chapter 14. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. And here is the promise that God brings to his people. Chapter 33, for example. And in verses 5 and 6, you get the same positive note as of God longing to come as a savior to his people. Verse 5 of chapter 33, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Now, can you see how God is, as it were, holding out before them again and again the possibilities of grace, the glories of salvation? He says, there's a key to this treasure. There is a treasure of rich salvation that God has for you. And it is the fear of the Lord that's the key that will open it up to you. And then that great 35th chapter where God speaks to them in these famous words of the desert and the wilderness rejoicing and blossoming, the glory of Lebanon being given to it, and they will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God, and so on. Now, therefore, throughout these first 39 chapters, you get all this promise of judgment laced with God's earnest desire for salvation. What he is really saying to them is, I would far rather bless you than chasten you. I would far rather restore you than judge you. And God is always saying that to his people. 
This is what God is like. He says, I would far rather bless you. This is what lies at the very forefront of my heart. I am a God of salvation whose reluctant work is judgment. Now chapter 39, the last chapter we read, brought the message of judgment to its climax, you will remember, with the prophecy that Isaiah is given to Judah that God is going to carry off his people into captivity, or at least to use the Babylonians to do that. And you'll remember how that uh, sad word comes in the final chapter of the first half of Isaiah, verse 3 of chapter 39. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, we know that that happened. That's what we know as the exile, when God's people were taken from the land of Judah and exiled into the land of Babylon. But from that exile there was to be a restoration. And chapter 40 begins the account of how God is to bring salvation to his people even when they have been exiled to Babylon. This, of course, means that from chapter 40, Isaiah is prophesying in the narrower sense of foretelling the future. It's important for us to realize that he's still speaking to the people of Judah. He's still speaking to his own generation. He has warned them that God is going to come and judge and chastise them and take them away into the land of Babylon where they will suffer the reality of being exiled from God. But he will ultimately come and deliver them again. And what he is speaking about is something that took place one and a half centuries later when the, the deliverance came, when Cyrus, the king of Persia, broke open the land of Babylon, and there was a stream of God's people under the leadership of people like Ezra and Nehemiah, who came back to Jerusalem. But not only is Isaiah from chapter 40 onwards, and this is really important, so you really need to waken up and grasp this now. Not only is Isaiah foretelling 
what is going to happen when the people of God go to Babylon and are ultimately delivered from there. He is also speaking to them about the ultimate deliverance that God has in mind far beyond Babylon, a deliverance not from exile to a foreign land, but a deliverance from the bondage of sin, which will be accomplished not by Cyrus the king of Persia, but by Jesus, the suffering servant, who is the promised Messiah. Now many people have pointed out, rightly, that in Isaiah chapter 40 and the chapters following, there is a note of a new exodus which God is going to accomplish for his people. And of course you can see why people have thought there's a parallel between the people of God leaving Babylon and coming back to Jerusalem and the people of God leaving Egypt and coming into the promised land. But of course this is an exodus that God has accomplished out of Babylon as well as the exodus out of Egypt. But both of these exoduses point to a third exodus. And this is what we need to see in Isaiah 40 to 66. There is not only an exodus led by Moses out of Egypt, and an exodus made possible by Cyrus the king out of Babylon, there is an exodus out of the bondage of sin led by Jesus, the suffering servant, who is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that this part of Isaiah is speaking to us about. And it's a fascinating thing to find that on the Mount of Transfiguration, we read in Luke chapter 9 that Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about the Exodus, which is the literal translation that he would accomplish in his death. Now this is the great Exodus. You will realize how we join the two together when we come to the Lord's Supper, don't we? What we say there is, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. And God is a God who is bringing his people from every kind of bondage. He is the God of the Exodus. He delivers his people and brings them salvation. Now, uh, this ultimately is the message of Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, the message of that suffering servant who will lead his people from a bondage greater than either Babylon or Egypt because he will bear their iniquity. Now you notice at the very beginning of chapter 40, it is this word of hope and comfort of a coming deliverer which is sounded. But it's important to see that Isaiah is still 
addressing Judah. And this is the importance of saying that it's still his contemporaries that he is addressing. This section of Isaiah is not to be lifted out so that we say this referred to people who lived in Babylon during the Exodus. This is still addressed to his contemporaries in Judah. And you find, therefore, that he is still pleading with them about their rebellion against the Lord. He is not just speaking here either only about salvation. Every now and again he says to them, Will you not lay down your rebellion against the Lord and trust him and come to him because he is a God of salvation? You just need to look on past chapter 40. For example, chapter 44 and verse 21 Chapter 4, 44, where he says, Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Now listen to the plea. Return to me, he says, for I have redeemed you. And here is God speaking through Isaiah still to the people of Judah. Chapter 45 at verse 9, where again you get the note of warning. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Paul quotes from this, do you remember, in Romans. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me? about my children, or give me orders about the works of my hand. You see how still this is this rebellious people to whom he is speaking. Chapter 46 and verse 3, where he begins to speak to them about their tendency to worship false gods. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and rescue you. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that, you may, that we may be compared some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver in the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. And this is the tendency, you see, that had been apparent in Judah. They had been a people who had refused to worship the Lord and had made false gods. In fact, chapters 40 to 66 
really divide into three groups of nine chapters each. There are 27 chapters from chapter 40 to 66. And if you want to see how Isaiah 40 to 66 is constructed, it's best to see it as three groups of nine chapters. And they are punctuated by the same word of warning at the end of the first two sections. For example, chapter 48, verse 22, which is the end of the first nine chapters. 40 to 48, as you realize, is nine chapters. And at the very last verse, where God is speaking to his people, he says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now, if you go nine chapters on to the end of chapter 57, you'll find at the end of that chapter, God says the same thing. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And at the very end of the prophecy in chapter 66 and verse 24, you get this final word of warning. They will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So the nine chapters are punctuated at the end of each nine with this word of warning that God is bringing back to Isaiah's contemporaries. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. And at the very end, he takes up the theme with which Isaiah begins in chapter 1, the rebellion of his people against him. Now, we return to the beginning of chapter 40 to look briefly at the first two verses of this introduction, which in many ways introduce the whole of this second section of Isaiah. It begins, you will notice, with a word of exhortation, particularly directed to Isaiah, I would think. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. An exhortation that he was to bring encouragement and hope and healing to God's people. And you'll see that there's an emphasis on the need for this and on the theme of it by repetition. You remember how Isaiah commonly uses repetition in chapter 6, for example, when he wants to emphasize the holiness of God. We have the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And here there is a double uh, expression of the word comfort, comfort, Comfort my people, says your God. And from the different way in which the same thing is expressed in verse 2, there is a further emphasis of it. 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, here is Isaiah being told by God and exhorted by him that he is to have a ministry to God's people of encouragement, speaking tenderly to them. That's a, a tremendous thing to find at the beginning of this second half of Isaiah, when God has been speaking so fiercely in so many ways to his people, when some of these appalling woes have been pronounced upon them, when the reality of judgment has been spelled out, God now comes with this great emphasis to Isaiah and says, Speak to the heart of my people. Speak tenderly to them. Comfort them. And it's the word that is used for comforting the mourning. Those who are in the midst of sorrow. And Isaiah is being sent by God to bind up the wounds of those who have been hurt by the reality of their sin and the judgment of God upon it. And there is this healing, encouraging ministry that Isaiah is being given by God. But you will notice that it comes, the encouragement and the comfort and the healing come by the proclamation of the truth of God to them. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her. But what he is to proclaim to her is the positive word of God's salvation. Now, I think there are many of us who need this exhortation from God. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to be negative with people. It's so easy for us to find ourselves perhaps with greater liberty to speak to people about sin and judgment and things that are condemnatory than to speak encouraging words of comfort and grace from God. Now immediately, of course, we will recognize that it's very easy for some people to refuse to speak the severer word. But it's an immensely important thing for us to recognize that out of the heart of God there is a preference for salvation. He wants to come to be our restorer. He would far rather bless us than discipline us and we need to have that coming through our lives, beloved, to other people. They need to see that in God from us. And it is very easy for us, isn't it, to give the opposite impression. And I think this is something that we need to learn from God's exhortation to Isaiah. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
and proclaim these things to her. Now, there are three elements in this proclamation. Do you notice each of them introduced with the word that? And proclaim to her that, one, her hard service has been completed. Two, that her sin has been paid for. Three, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let's just briefly notice these before we finish this evening. The first thing that Isaiah is to proclaim, which is to be an encouragement, a comfort, a tender word from God to the heart of Jerusalem, is that her hard service, as the NIV puts it, has been completed. The authorized version has her warfare is ended. And certainly the idea that is in the word is the idea of a time of darkness and misery and hardship. Those of you who are old enough, and hardly any of you apart from myself, are old enough to remember the time of the war when the excuse for almost any kind of hardship that people went through was, but there's a war on, they would say, you know. People would say to you, if you couldn't get something, ah, but there's a war on, they would say. You realize this is the problem. Times of war are times of hardship, times of distress, times of suffering. But in their case, these times of hardship and suffering and of misery were brought on because of their rebellion against the Lord, culminating in the exile. Now you remember the refrain at the end of each group of nine chapters, there is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. I suppose most of us have found this rebellion against the Lord turning from his ways ultimately pays its own wages. And we discover that the way of the transgressor is hard. That's true. Now, the lie of the devil, you know, is that walking in the will of God is hard. That's what he wants you to believe. This is why, of course, Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and says, Has God said you may not eat of every tree in the garden? Well, of course, God had not said that. But what Satan is trying to suggest to them, you see, is that the way of the obedient child of God is hard. That's where hardship, misery, and suffering lie. Now, you will know that our fallen nature includes a secret suspicion that that's true, doesn't it? We all of us suspect that, that somehow or other to give everything to the Lord, to trust Him absolutely, to lay our lives at His feet and say, Lord, everything I am and have belongs to you. We say, goodness me, what am I giving up? What's, what's the awful hardship I'm going to experience? That's what lies deep in our hearts, isn't it? Whereas Scripture says it's the way of the transgressor that is hard. And now here is 
God saying to Isaiah, say to these people as they have turned from me and tasted of the wells of salvation, speak a word of comfort to them. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Tell them their warfare is ended. Their hard service has been completed. That's a real thing for us to grasp, that it is the service of sin which is hard. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. We really need convinced of that, don't we? So he says, speak comfortably to them. They are leaving the service of a hard taskmaster when they leave Babylon, as the people of God were when they left Egypt. And you and I are when we leave the service of sin. Your hard service has been completed. Second, that our sin has been paid for. Now, this is the language of receiving and accepting a sacrifice for sin, and the sufficiency of that sacrifice is acknowledged when God says to Isaiah, proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. Now, that, of course, is the first intimation in the second half of Isaiah of what is going to be expressed in all its fullness when we get, for instance, to chapter 53, where we read of him who came to make atonement for our sin, to bear our transgression, to carry our sorrows. And this is the cause of the comfort of the people of God. It's the comfort of the gospel, you see. He says, proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. But the most difficult difficult one to understand is the last one, probably, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I remember finding great difficulty in that in the early days of my Christian life. I thought, what is God saying? Is he saying that he gives double the necessary punishment for sin to his people like this? They have received double. That is double the result of their sin or something of the kind. Now, the word double may refer either to punishment or to blessing. It really means, in a neutral sense, abundance. And God may therefore be saying, you have re- they have received an abundance for all their sins in the sense that he has chastened them. And they have received an abundance of lessons from God about the price that sin exacts. That's one thing that it may mean. 
But you know, one of the great writers on Isaiah is Professor Edward J. Young, who used to teach many years ago at Westminster Seminary, where Sinclair Ferguson is. And he has written uh, one of the best commentaries on Isaiah that runs to three volumes and, and is very full. And one of the things that he says is that this word for double can also mean and frequently does mean a folding over. And there is a lot of evidence from Oriental and Semitic usage of this that the idea lies in this realm, you know, that someone's transgressions would be written out. And then when they were atoned for, there would be a folding over of the transgressions. And frequently, this would have been an evidence of a covering now you know how the Bible speaks about a covering for sin. The very word atonement means that. His sin is covered, it is atoned for. And it may possibly be, I think that it's one of the likeliest explanations, that what Isaiah is speaking about here is the covering of sin, the folding over. So that, and you can see the use of the word double because the page becomes double and it is the double, almost a technical term for the folding over, the covering over of transgression. Now that would uh, fit in very much to what Isaiah is saying. But whatever it is, what he is saying is God is going to make ample provision for his people, that his heart is overflowing with a desire to comfort and encourage them. So he goes on to speak about himself as the shepherd who gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart and gently leads those that have young. Now this is the beautiful picture of that tender grace of God. Before we finish, my brothers and sisters, I must tell you that you and I as Christian believers are not famed in the world for that tenderness of spirit. We are not famed for this gracious and beautiful shepherdly care for people. Nor are we famed really for the spirit of encouragement. You know, here is God saying to Isaiah, comfort them, encourage them. It's a marvelous thing when you find God giving somebody this kind of spirit. I think one of the secrets of the Apostle Paul's life in the goodness of God was that there was a chap called Barnabas who came to him at a particular time in his life. And by his very name, he tells you what he's like. Barnabas means the son of encouragement or the son of consolation. 
And here he was, you know, came to the apostle at all sorts of different times in his life, at critical times when he might have tripped up and fallen. And there was Barnabas, went away quite a long distance until he found the apostle Paul, introduced him to the disciples and made sure that they accepted him. A marvelous thing to find a Barnabas like that. Greater things still to be a Barnabas to other people like that. And yet I say to you, we really are not famed for the Spirit. And yet it's so much in the heart of God when you come to Scripture. The Spirit of encouragement. And I tell you something, shall I, before we stop. The place where encouragement is most needed is the place where it's most seldom given. When do you need encouragement most? Tell me. When you're a great success and everything's gone well, well, that's when people give you encouragement, you know. When everything's gone well, you've done something, whatever you've done. If you've done it really well, that's when people come with encouragement. That was great. You did so well. But personally, the time when I need encouragement is when I'm ready to scrape myself off the floor and when I've done badly. And I reckon that's when you need encouragement as well. But it's the very time when we don't give it, isn't it? That's really very unlike God. Because... God is a God who encourages the cast down. That's a beautiful thing about God. And we need to learn it more and more. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the rich treasures of your salvation in Jesus Christ. We do bless you so much with all our hearts this evening that you are the God of all comfort. And we pray that you would help us that we may so have the Holy Spirit living within us that we may be comforters as he is. We ask you, gracious Lord, that you would Touch us by your grace that we may glory in your salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit we gladly give all the honor and praise now and forever. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.